never, ever, <laughs> ever use your models in the migrations. Episode 82, March 2015. In this episode, Chad Patel, founder and CEO of ThoughtBot, talks about God objects, decorators, and presenters, gives you best practices for writing clean migrations, and explains Rats Nest resources and how to cover integration points in your tests. This episode is sponsored by the Draplin Design Company and Field Notes. Can you explain what God objects are? So, a God object is when you have this object in your system which is just getting more and more responsibility it's called a god object because it knows about everything and everything knows about it it is so just over the entire system and it's a huge object it's like all consuming all knowing in rails applications that would typically be the user object so users tend to get a lot of behavior put on them and know about everything that a user does that kind of thing It also tends to, there tends to be two God objects in Rails apps. It's usually user and then the one object that is your primary thing that this application is about. So it may be like if you have an ordering system or an e-commerce system, it might be the order object. And they'll just be these huge objects that know about everything. And that, so that's what a God object is. What is a decorator? The decorator and the presenter patterns are important in Rails, and they are often used a little bit differently in Rails or in, in systems that we build than they historically would have been called. So if you go and you look up decorator pattern or presenter pattern, it can be a little confusing. So typically in a Rails application, in a Ruby on Rails application, when people say decorator, what they're talking about is you have one object, which is layered on top of another object and does things to it that are used for the view. So let, that's the generic definition. Let's do something specific. If you had a user object and that user object has first name and last name, a decorator for that user object would be something that another object called user profile, which just takes that user and has a name method, which puts the first name and last name together because that's all that's needed for the view. That's, you know, the in the places that the user profile is used, we're just displaying the full name. And rather than having a full name method, because it's not part of the domain, it's only used in the view, you introduce a decorator, which decorates the user and takes its data and does something with it primarily for the view. So that's a decorator. And when people talk about presenters in Rails, they're very often, one way to think about them is decorators for multiple objects. So a decorator is largely just taking one object and transforming it for the view. And a presenter in a Rails application, when people talk about that, they're typically talking about taking multiple objects, putting them together in a way that is representative for the view that we're on. Can you talk about best practices to write migrations and to avoid creating messy ones? So the first and foremost thing is to never, ever, <laughs> ever use your models in the migrations. So you can create new models if you really want to inside migrations. Remember, migrations are just Ruby code. People think of them as something a little bit different, but they're actually just Ruby files that are being run. And so you can do anything in a Rails application you can do in your migration. The problem when you use your models that exist in your system, 
in your inside of your migration, you are fixing it, your migration at a single point in time where that model exists in your code at that point that you ran the migration. But your migration may not be run for a week or a month or when you're setting up a new system later on. It is very, very, very likely that the model that exists in your source code at the point in time that migration runs does not match the model that existed at the point in time when that you wrote that migration. In fact, you can't even guarantee that that model exists anymore. If I use a person class, a person model directly in my migration, and then two months later or a week later, I remove the person class entirely from the system. When I go to run that migration later on, there is no person class for it to use. Even if I am running it, the migration on a database that matches the state that it was in when the person class existed, my source code no longer has a person class in it. So the way around this is you, you need to create a person model inside of your migration. Now that's a lot of overhead. So we typically just avoid that entirely and just use database table. The general guideline is always in your migrations, just use database tables directly. Do all your manipulation directly on the database. Don't use models. That's the best way, cleanest way to avoid that. The other is don't change migrations once you commit them to source code. If you make a mistake in a migration or you realize you've made a mistake in a migration and you've already pushed that to Git and you've already, you know, you're working with multiple people and it's very likely that that migration has already been checked out by somebody else and potentially run on their system. Rails doesn't really give you a good way in a non-destructive or disruptive way to the other developers or designers on your team to change that migration and have it rerun. So you're really in a scenario where you really just need to write another migration, which takes from the point in time where you have the mistake and fix that mistake. Now, there are exceptions to that. If, if you've really you know, messed up the migration so it doesn't run at all, you need to fix it. But in cases where you've just done something inadequate, you really want to write another migration to fix it. Those are the two big ones that I think people uh, are, are common mistakes that people make. Okay, everybody, my name is Aaron James Draplin. Just got done telling you about my whole life, uh, the good, the bad, the gross, the ugly, the weird, the sinister, the awesome. And now you need to go to draplin.com and buy some killer merch, draplin.com backslash merch, and things that you need, right? Okay, you need to go there and look at this stuff. And then when you're done with that, you need to go to fieldnotesbrand.com and get some memo books. We'll ship them anywhere. If you're listening to this in Vienna, Austria, or Vienna... Illinois, hell, wherever that is, we will we'll ship them there too. Okay, fieldnotesbrand.com. You need these things. $9.95 for a three-pack. Would you pay for coffee today, right? Right, right? You need this stuff. So draplin.com, fieldnotesbrand.com. And uh, yeah, those are, the, those are the only two links you need in your life. There you go. What are Red Snast resources? So RASTness resources are when you have a controller that has multiple responsibilities. This is most common if you have, say for example, I'll use the example again, an orders controller, and you want an index action on that orders controller. And it's used in two places. It's both to view all of the orders in a system, as well as from particular user for the particular user exactly so that order that that orders controller has 
potentially a parameter that takes in user ID. And sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. And when it's not, you display all orders. And when it's there, you display uh, just the orders for a user. That can get very confusing, particularly when you know there's a lot of that going on. And so generally we wanna break that apart Oh, and it particularly gets bad when you have alternate views or differences in the views. So it's not just controllers that creates the rat's nest. It's also then you have views which have many, many conditionals in them and say, well, if I'm displaying the orders for a user, then I want to show this in the view, the, the header that shows the user that we're viewing, that kind of thing. You know, it starts to diverge that much. You really just want to have two order controllers, one nested under users and one that's not nested, one that has the parameter, one that doesn't, and alternate views that share partials. And that tends to be much cleaner. And what are integration points and what are good strategies to cover them in your tests? Well, so integration points are, the way I think about integration points is really twofold. The ma major integration points sort of at a high level are any places where your system interacts with another system. Those are the most common ones. If you're, if you're working with an API, or you know, you're consuming an API, or someone is using you to do work. Those are major integration points. And you know, the, the ways that you would isolate them, and, and you would normally test those through isolation. You can't test the whole system. You can't write your tests so that they actually hit that external API and use that external API. So you normally isolate the system, fake out the interaction with the external service, and your tests use that fake or that mocked object and do it. So those are the most high level integration points that are easiest to think about and use and account for in your specs. And one of the reasons why they're mo the most straightforward is because you need to do them. Like you, it's possible, but you would never wanna write tests that actually hit an external service. Those tests won't run you know, a lot of the time. You can't maintain, internal consistent state in that external service, that kind of thing. So you're really forced to deal with it there. And that happens at the unit level. And at integration level, you're writing fakes that fake out that service so that you're not really talking to that service, that kind of thing. The reality is, is you have integration points all throughout your application. You have it when you talk to the database. Uh, you have it when every individual object in your system talks to each other. You have it between your views and your controllers and your models. You have all of these integration points and you're going to have your specs that you're writing come together at those integration points. Sometimes you're going to test the individual pieces in isolation, usually at the unit level. And sometimes you're going to integrate those different pieces, usually at the integration level. And that's the way I think about integration points now. I think my, my thinking on this certainly has become a little bit more complicated, a little bit more sophisticated as Frankly, I get better at testing, better at having written so many applications and doing outside-in test-driven development where you start with the integration level tests. Before you've written any code, you write out at the integration level, at the highest level of testing, what's on the page, how it's going to work, how you're going to flow, what results we expect to get, and then go one level in and write the code that starts to make that pass. And that's going to expose controller specs and write the, you have integration points there, right? Isolated controller specs that allow those integration tests to pass. And in order to do that, you're going to have to write some models. And so you, you write some models and you write isolated unit tests for those models. And then you work your way back out. 
you can even go one step further and those isolated model tests should really isolate themselves against the database as well. Pragmatically speaking, we don't often do that in most of our applications because it's just not really necessary or pragmatic in most Rails applications to need to do that. Thank you.